Podcast. Hey, everybody. Roll on is back and coming right up. But first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But 
no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, so we got a lot in store for you today. Adam and I recap his recent Goggins Challenge experience. We dive into the bizarre and quite fascinating world of NFTs. We take listener questions and a bunch more stuff. So let's do the thing. Hey everybody, thank you for allowing us to once again hold you pod hostage for another uh, rendition of Roll On, wherein my cogitative, neighborly, and rather magnanimous Sidecar hype beast, Mr. Adam Skolnick, and I yes. indulge you with droll repartee, raillery, shrewd observations on concepts, issues, and matters of importance, both great and uh, probably not so much. Yes, usually. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we also do a wee bit of show and tell, and of course, answer some of your listener questions from our voicemail. Uh, you can leave us a message at 424-235-4626. So lean back or lean in, smash that subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, wherever that is. Click the like, leave your comments in the comment section below, as all those YouTubers are fond of saying. And mm. uh, let's get into it. Adam, how you doing? Doing great, man. Feeling good. Um, I've enjoyed the rain a little bit. Got in the water yesterday. It rained pretty hard. Rained this last morning night. pretty hard last night. You don't want to be getting in the water right no. after a rainstorm. We snuck one in yesterday. It was nice and crisp, 55 degree Fahrenheit. That's pretty good. Yeah. How thick is your web, your wetsuit, your website, uh, uh, your wetsuit? My, my, my website's so thick. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, I, I have a few different ones, but the one I used yesterday is like a triathlon suit. Uh -huh. So it's, it's kind of piecemeal. So there's a five millimeter in the chest four in the thighs and then it's like 0.5 in the shoulders and you know just different places. So you're not wearing your swim run wetsuit for your no. adventures around the point. No, but then when you're when you do a few dives after a while like the area where it's 0.5 starts to <laughs> like you feel the cold right. there first and it just starts to radiate down. Um 
but it's fun. You know, I, I wear, I wear some weights. So the swim out and back against the current with weights is kind of around the, right at the end of zoom of Zuma there, where you go around the, 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 the point, the point. Yeah. Yeah. Point yeah. We started at different places yesterday. We walked down to the last lifeguard tower and launched from there. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I went out and back. My friends usually go around the point, but for me, I have the family on the beach, so I, I try to, you know, it right. means I don't get to see Big Doom, but if I can grab an hour at the reef, that's like. Also, I, you're you know. you're more likely to steer clear of predatory marine life that way. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Going around that point is dicey. When I tell people that I swim around that yeah. point with you, they look at me like I'm a crazy person. We've right. talked about this before. Right, but but like where even the, the, the pinnacles themselves have so much life that anything that could get you uh, around the point can get you at the pinnacles because that's where the like the main reef structure is. <laughs> that's so not that, making me feel better. But um, about my next outing with you at, the, at this moment, though, it's like the beginning of the whale migration. I mean, it's, it mm -hmm. started a few, you know a few weeks ago, but it's becoming more and more every day. There's more whales coming through. So if you can go, so an out and back, you have a better chance of seeing them because you often see them off the beach where the waves are more mm -hmm. often than where the pinnacles are. What so. about the sharks though? How are the sharks impacted by the whale migration? There is a shark season and you start to notice it when the sea lions wash up on the beach with bites taken out of them. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but Also a confidence booster when you're <laughs> putting on the wetsuit. Yes, but uh, I think I have, to, I have to look at it, but I, I think that the shark season is coming up. I think the sh main shark season is like in May, June. Mm. Um, it doesn't really dovetail as far as I know in terms of the breeding. Cause what's happening is just uh, not too far off shore and in Santa Monica Bay, I mean, sunset where the surf break is, right. like a half mile out there, that's a shark nursery mm. as far as I understand it. And there has been more juvenile whites this season than they've seen in a long, long time. At least that was what the reporting was, excuse me, last season. So. Um, I'd have to look. I, you know, offhand, I forget when the when the breeding season is, but that's mm -hmm. the pupping season because they're live birth. You know, they're like right. one of the fish that actually gives live births. Right. Yeah. I haven't heard of any attacks in recent memory, though. No, we don't have a great history of like fatal attacks. You know, we have had some bites and stuff. Mm -hmm. Usually, it's again, it's it's connected to a swimmer swimming under the pier and the fisherman had a, a juvenile white on the line right. and it was angry and it, it hit the swimmer. That was the most recent one. What is the uh, conventional wisdom about how long you should wait after a big rain to go in the ocean? Cause there's so much toxic runoff. Yeah. So I know that you're not supposed to do it for a couple days. Three days. Three days. 72 hours is what they usually do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's rained a bunch in a row, probably you can get away with two days because it's not like the first coat of that slick grime mm -hmm. from the streets. Because what happens is that all that gets into the storm drains. Right. The storm drains end up in the ocean and that's the main reason. Right. So it's it's like the toxins and the fertilizers and things like that. Have you ever gotten sick because you got in too early after runoff? I have not, I have not, I've been lucky, but I usually do abide by the 72 hours. Yeah. I don't, I don't mess around. Yeah. Surfers are less likely to abide because they have to surf when the waves are there. Mm -hmm. And, um, and but they're not underwater the same way. So mm -hmm. like they, they they're mostly above water. They're not getting a but lot of water. But what would in their be ears. the symptoms? Like what would you catch? I think ear 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 infections would be the first thing. Ear uh -huh. infections could be sinus infection, diarrhea, dysentery. It could be if you like to drink seawater. <laughs> yeah, I just remember when uh, when I was 
I've probably told this story before, but it's been a really long time if I have. Uh, when I was living in New York City, um, right after college, like 89, 90, 91, my roommate, Matt Nance, who was a teammate of mine on the Stanford swim team, mm. uh, decided that he wanted to do the swim around Manhattan okay. that they hold every year. Yes. Um, at that point in time, I was not interested in endurance sports. So I opted out of that. In mm. fact, he wanted me to crew for him and I had a family vacation in Michigan. So I missed the whole thing. But mm. I remember when he was training for that and getting ready for it, um, they send you like a, uh, like a binder full of information that includes, you know, all the, all the shots you have to get before, mm. <laughs> you know, cause you're literally swimming in the Harlem river. Like, right. and, you know, you're going all the way around Manhattan. Um, and he had to get all these shots. And then he told me that, you know, especially up in the Northern points, he would just run into garbage like constantly yeah. as he was swimming it. And then he got yeah. a terrible urine infection afterwards that he claimed had nothing to do with <laughs> the swim, but I can't imagine it didn't. Right. Um, and I also remember that near, sort of near the George Washington bridge is this, I don't know if it's still there or if this is still a thing, but there, was this giant like suck hole. Like there's something under the water that was like, you know, basically creating a vacuum effect right. in this whirlpool and you had right. to steer very clear of that or suffer or the suffer, consequences get of getting sucked down into the black hole. Was that the East River or the Hudson? No, no, or? in the Hudson, Hudson, in the Hudson. I think like a little bit south of the George Washington Bridge okay. if memory serves me, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, that's the East River to Harlem River to Hudson, right? Isn't mm. that the route or something? You like start that? down, you start down near Wall Street. Okay. And I think you go up the East River first yeah. and you come down the Hudson. Okay. Yeah. And he got second place. I think he, I think at the time it was probably 90 or 91. He broke the men's record, but he got beat by a 15 year old Australian girl who was like this, the queen, whose name escapes me, but she was like the queen of open water swimming. Well, I mean, that was the triple crown, right? So for many years- And his crew was comprised of like my hungover buddies. <laughs> Whoever you could find. Yeah. Dude, I need you to just hand me water every 30 minutes. Right, who had no idea what they were in for. And uh, now I feel I have tremendous regret that uh, I wasn't there for him to you support didn't bear him in that way. But anyway, I don't know how we got off on that tangent. tangent. Open water swimming. Um, yeah, speaking of the rains, yep. I, uh, in anticipation of it raining last night, I had to go and get a new tent, because mm. which is something I have to do like every six months, because the sun really? beats down on my right. cheap tent. Yeah. And it becomes like tissue paper and it frays. So there were all these holes in my, <laughs> it was oh my like goodness. raining in there, it was getting wet. <laughs> And uh, you slept through the rain? Well, there were portions of it where like water started to pool and I was just too busy or lazy to go replace the tent. So, you know, I had like the bottom of my sheets would be wet when I wake up in the morning and I was like, <laughs> I gotta fix this. So I went and got a new tent and I was kind of taking everything out and setting it up and putting everything in. And I realized some stuff has mold in it. Like this is not mm. good. So the thought occurred to me since I am sleeping in a tent basically every night, like why am I, spending four or $500 on a new tent every six months, I should get like a proper outdoor, like canvas Ooh. glamping tent that could stand the test of time. So I've been researching, like I, like I could just get a huge tent and like create like a whole room, you know? So you're going, so now from, I'm excited you're about going this. from REI to Vegas Cabana? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking into like some cool tent designs. I if like there's it. any 
canvas, high-end glamping canvas tent manufacturers yeah. out there that want to talk to me, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to hear from them because yeah, they, these tents just get shredded. Like they're just, the sun beats down on them and then literally they just rip and tear. But w- wouldn't canvas also kind of take a beating up there or no, not really? Well, I would imagine, but you know, they're going to last a couple of years. Yeah. Com- yeah. Like a year, you could put like a year up there. Yeah. We have a teepee. Yeah, but it's way down, far away from the house. I don't know. I want I, so anyway. Just that's what I'm thinking TV about. Could be cool. A glamping tent, Adam. Imagine the I'm possibilities. Want to glamp on the roof? Yeah. So we're sort of constructing this new um, little uh, section of our home, like on the side, where which is where my container office is, and where I have this tent. Um, and we just got a uh, cold plunge. We're going to talk yes. about that in a little bit. I, I guess saw we could just post. talk about it. Could just talk about it right now. Um, these guys, Michael Garrett and Ryan Dewey, who are out of Sacramento, have this new company called The Cold Plunge, thecoldplunge.com. And they reached out to me and just wanted to gift me a cold plunge, Amazing. which is one of the side benefits of hosting a podcast, I suppose. Yeah. They create these next level cold baths that are really beautiful, like these beautiful tubs that have a filtration system and a temperature gauge on them. Uh, so you can just set the temperature and it has a cover on it and mm. it's always good to go. So you don't have to worry about buying tons of ice or trying to jerry rig uh, you know, a top door freezer so that you don't electrocute yourself, right. which is what a lot of people do, which well, that's what I was thinking of doing. Cause I've done cold plunging before, but never consistently cause I don't have it at my house and I'm not gonna be, you know, just going to the store and buying bags and bags of ice all the time. Like, it's so sort most of like, people like take one of those freezers, the top drawer, the freezer, top drawer freezers. And yeah, and you you have to customize, customize them, and I think you have to put like a lining. It's like a it's a, a little bit more of an elaborate process than you might suspect, rather than just filling it with water and getting into it because it's not built for that. Right. Um, but these guys just created like a standalone situation that is very aesthetically cool yeah, and cool works really well and doesn't require like almost any maintenance whatsoever. It must be so and they easy came, to clean. You, you, I think you just have to put, they were telling me you just have to put, um, I can't remember how much, like a quart or two of hydrogen peroxide in it every two weeks or something like that, but it's filtering the water all the time. So it's always filled with it's water. Always, you don't yeah, have to empty no, it. No, it's always filled with water. Okay. Yeah, and it's filtering the water all the time. And then it has a temp gauge on it. So you can set the temp wherever you want it. It will go down to 39 degrees and I hate cold water so much. Like this is part of why I'm doing this is because I have such an aversion to this right. um, that I started it out at the wimpy temperature of like 58 and I've mm. been going down two degrees every day. So I'm down to like, today will be 48. Okay. Which is a pretty good place. That's great. And I'm digging it. It's been really great. Like How long I do, are you in there for? So I do three rounds of four minutes okay. and we also have an outdoor tub right next to it. So I fill that with hot water. I eventually wanna get a barrel sauna, like a proper sauna. We don't have that now. But until that point, just alternating between getting in the cold plunge and then getting into the hot tub and then doing three rounds of that, four it. minutes each, which has been great. And it's so refreshing. It is addictive. You hear that? Like, yeah. oh, it's, and it do, it's not that it gets easier. There's always that, like, I definitely don't want to get in this freezing cold tub, but right. I've gotten better at it. And it's really a great kind of meditative practice because it forces you to be present. Like you can't be thinking about anything else except your breath. The brain gets white, <laughs> yeah. right? The brain is white. Right. 
Um, so cool. I wanted to thank those guys publicly, Michael and, and Ryan. If you wanna learn more, you can go to thecoldplunge.com. Um, it is an expensive item and uh, it was just so gracious of them to gift it to me. And it, this is not a sponsored thing. Like they, right. they didn't ask me to do anything, you right. know, but I just wanted to acknowledge them and let them know that they I really appreciate you. it and that I'm, that I'm putting it to use. So that's been really fun. Um, What's that been doing physically for you? I definitely sleep better. Mm -hmm. You know, sleep's like my whole thing. Yeah. I'm always trying to optimize that. So I've noticed um, that uh, it's not that I, I don't have problems falling asleep, but um, like around the middle of the night, I'll often wake up and I found that I've, I'm sleeping more soundly throughout the night and in a deeper state, according mm -hmm. to my whoop, which is good. Um, it also has, you know, because it's so anti-inflammatory, it's really been helping my back. So really? when I'm like in the hours after doing it, like my back feels better than it's felt in a long time. Amazing. So that's another initial, I mean, I've only been doing this for five days or something like okay. that, but, but you're already feeling I'm stuff. making it a daily practice and I can definitely feel the difference. And it's also a mood enhancer. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when you kind of in the middle of the afternoon, you're a little, you've worked and you're kind of burned out. You're a little yeah. bit tired. If you do it midday, it's sort of like taking a power nap. Like mm. you just feel completely fresh again. Mm. So that's been cool too. It is cool. I love it. In so you do news, it in the morning and then also sometimes um, midday? Well, it's, it's just been based on my schedule. Like yeah. yesterday I did it after a long bike ride. Um, doing it in the morning is great, but I did it in the afternoon the other day. I'm like, I haven't had a consistent, like I do it at this time every day. Okay. It kind of catches catch can, um, but I'm digging it. Cool. It's been fun, you'll have to come over and check it out. I gotta do it, yeah. man, I love that thing. Um, Kevin Roos went up on the podcast, that was super fun. Mm. I felt like I was cheating on you a little bit. <laughs> You're not at Fellow all. Fellow New York Times <laughs> writer. Well, he's he's, uh, he's a, a tenured professor over there. He is, he's a, he's an el he's a elder statesman. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an associate professor. He's higher professor. up in the New York Times <laughs> pecking order. I'm not on the pecking order. <laughs> um, but it was really fun. Actually, there were moments during that podcast where I felt like, it would have been good to have you also yeah, on the mic. It. Yeah. So he's got an open invite to come on the show next time he finds himself in LA. So maybe if and when that happens, we'll do it as a threesome. Perfect. But that was really cool since we talk about his work so often on yeah. the show and we've been such champions of rabbit hole. It was really fun and cool to talk to him. Um, I should also mention that Alex Honnold dropped by I've heard of him. late last week. <laughs> For those that don't know who he is, uh, he climbed a very steep <laughs> quite wall steep. in Yosemite without any ropes. They yeah. made a movie about it that won an Oscar. Yeah. Um, and that was really cool. He's been on the show before, longtime listeners know, but it was cool to have him back on. He's uh, got this podcast yes. that he's starting called Climbing Gold. That's about the history of climbing and also about the upcoming uh, introduction of climbing into the Olympics. Um, so we talked about that, but what was a couple cool things about that experience? Uh, he brought the van, <laughs> so the van was here at the studio. <laughs> He's still driving, which is that amazing. Van <laughs> and it's got the little um, the little finger grips inside the door yeah. that he does his workouts on. And you know, he was doing like two finger pull ups with one arm and stuff like that, crazy. which was crazy to see. Yeah, um, and that interview was cool. It was a little bit different from, I think, most interviews he has done of late because it's not about 
free solo, it was more about kind of what he's up to now. How do you move forward from something like that? Yeah. He recently spent a month in Guyana yeah. uh, for a Nat Geo project. So we talked a lot about the environment, uh, all the work that he's doing with his foundation, the Honnold Foundation, solar energy, renewables. Um, and that episode is gonna go up, I believe March 29th. So everybody has that to look forward to. It's very cool. I, I can't believe, I, I'm really surprised he's still driving around. I don't, shouldn't be based on- I think it is his second solo. one though. At some point he okay. upgraded it. Okay. I mean, it looked, it didn't look new. I mean, it looked like, you know, he was stay, apparently he was gonna sleep in it. I'm but sure he yeah, is. Yeah, so. <laughs> like he, anyway. he parked it here, yeah. hopped a flight to Guyana. Came back here. No, he was he lives in Vegas, right. so he drove here. Yeah, and then he had some other press stuff. Um, but his plan was to just he was going to see some friends, and I'm sure he he told me he was just going to sleep in the back of the truck. Yeah, right. So of course, right, it's comfortable for him. Right. Yeah. Um, should we recap the Goggins challenge? All right. It's been Let's a week. It. You've had time to reflect on the profundity of this endurance feat that you accomplished. How are you feeling? You know, I feel good. Like my body feels totally fine. Um, I'm, I'm. It was, it was fun to do. It was. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm very appreciative of you know. You came out to to visit. I had other friends uh, pace me. You paced me on your bicycle. Other people paced running. Um, I was getting messages galore from listeners uh, and their interest and encouragement was just like, I didn't expect it. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was really cool. It was cool to be a part of. I mean, I think early on after the first run, the first run I was kind of too keyed up. And so eight o'clock hits and my legs have kind of are heavy and lactic acid on that very first run. And I'm thinking to myself, that's okay. Cause after this first run, I can take care of my body, hydrate up, and and then that'll be over. Mm -hmm. And then because because it you're gonna get tired eventually, so right. it's fine if it happens early on because the point is to run when you're tired. So that first run, I was a little bit not feeling that great, uh, but but pushed through. And then from then on, it just was kind of like a clockwork thing. And uh, yeah, I, I I was able to get through each phase. And Jason Camiolo. Right who's right behind me right, right behind now, here. you did it as well. So you guys were, I, I know you guys were on the blower with each other throughout the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, messaging after every single um, one. And, and, and I'd say like the, the second run, I, I stayed up till midnight the first day. Well, let's take a second and just, yeah. re, if somebody's brand new and they don't know what we're talking yes. about, the Goggins Challenge is this challenge that David Goggins proposed as kind of a crowdfunding, not crowdfunding, but a, mm -hmm. a, a participatory challenge where you run four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight. Yeah. It starts on a Friday night at eight o'clock, yep. right? Yep. And you go through late Sunday afternoon, yep. basically. And and so like the first run kind of, I was a little keyed up and my my calf, my left calf was tightening up a little bit, but uh, you know, that was fine. I had a, a bit of an adrenaline, adrenaline crash after and I didn't wanna sleep before the first midnight. I wanted mm -hmm. to stretch and be ready. And so I didn't. Slept. The second run was a lot better. Slept a little bit after, and then it was like you know the 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 four a.m. run, which was <laughs> which was not very fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sleep. I was running past people who sleep in their vans. How much did you sleep before that run? Probably uh, two and a half, three hours. Oh, that's that was probably good. the longest sleep mm -hmm. of the entire situation. 
And then the fourth run found a rhythm again. And, and I was listening to earbuds for the first time. That was 8 a.m. on Saturday. And I found that it kind of took away from the experience. Mm. Like I was, I thought I would get through all of Bravey or something or like, right. like the whole, I was just gonna listen to books. But I found that it just wasn't working for me. Like I'd rather have the quiet. And, um, and so I stopped doing that. Uh, April ran two of the segments with me and she yeah. usually I pushed the pram, but she was pushing the stroller the whole time. So she did, I think I, I pushed it for maybe a half a mile at one point, but right. she, she was, uh, she did 16 of the miles. So she was with me and she That's rocked amazing. it. And um, the fastest of the weekend was that sixth run, the, the 20 to 24 miles. Mm -hmm. And then um, all of a sudden people started calling me wanting to pace me, my, my buddy, Adam Dole, Right, calls me I know, out Adam, early podcast guest. Early podcast guest, yeah. And and uh, and shout out Adam Dole. And he called me and he's like, hey, do you want, or texted me, do you want a pacer? Mm -hmm. It's okay if you say no. And I'm like, sure, at that point, I'll take any help. Yeah. Um, and so he came in, my, another friend, Reese Pacheco, who um, runs WSL Pure, the uh, environmental organization. He came in for noon and four the last day. Adam was at 8 p.m., then he came back for 4 a.m., I mean, wow. just incredible. That's cool. And uh, yeah, and so through it all, I, like I didn't sleep much the second day. I slept after the 8 p.m. to midnight, and that was the craziest time because I, I set my alarm for 11.30 instead of 23.30. And so then I slept through the midnight, uh -huh. and I woke up just like in a start, like drenched in sweat at 12.20 p.m. Uh, a.m. And I'm like, fuck. And so then I had disqualified. To, and I had to like race to get my shit. Cause at that point I knew Adam was coming at four. Mm -hmm. So there was no pushing the 4 a.m. run. So at that point, that's all off. Right. So I just ran out the door. And so then I stopped kind of like my legs started tightening up. My knees started to hurt a little bit. But um, for the most part, my body held up really well. And, uh, you know, it was just a great experience. Like I have to say, it's, a, it's the, it's my the greatest athletic feat I think of my lifetime mm. that I've ever done. So, That's cool. um, and I didn't, you know, go into it thinking that was going to be the case. But looking back, I have to say, I don't think there's anything close. Maybe kill, I climbed Kilimanjaro, but that's I think less people have done this than have climbed mm. Kili. How would you compare those two? I mean, it's apples and oranges, but in this terms is of, way more demanding. I mean, yeah. if you're in shape, Kili is is not a killer. You know, mm. it, it's 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 a couple. You know, there's there's difficult moments. And um, you're going into altitude, so altitude is a game. Like anybody could suffer from altitude at any time. So there's some there's some variables that are beyond your control with with altitude. But if you're in shape, um, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's not fun. like that hard of a thing yeah. to do. Um, but this, you know, 48 miles in two days. I don't know. Is that an ultra? Or is it anything? Fake well, ultra? I don't know. It's I a mean, fake ultra. technically, an ultra <laughs> is defined as anything longer than a marathon. But I don't know when you break it up. Right? How that? You know, who cares? It's you know like, what I mean? You, know you what? did a hard thing. It's you, like you want to put a label on it. It's you know what it's like. It's like the 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 breaking the breaking it up made it easier for sure. Yeah, um, no question about it. And that was the accessibility that you were pointing out. That's what's so cool about it. Right, but and that end, it sneaks up on you. Cause you're like, yeah. I could do, I could run four miles every four hours yeah. slow. Right. Which but is, then, you know, it incrementally, the, the degree of difficulty gets notched up, you the know, second as, night the, is, as the sleep slips away. The second <laughs> right? night's tough. Second yeah. night's tough. But you know, like, I think there were a couple of moments, I think after the first 16 miles, I looked up and I was like, okay, 32 to go. <laughs> 
you know, you try not to check the scoreboard. No. But then once you get past the first day, you just focus on what's right in front of you to do, which is get through those four miles. I mean, I you know I rode my bike down. Yeah. On Saturday afternoon to do a temp check on you, and you were in good spirits, and April was out there with you pushing the baby, and you were all smiles and laughs. Yeah, I mean, I try to keep it that way. You know, I think look a couple of things. I didn't go into it saying I'm going to try to do this. I went into it, you know, feeling like I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. So it was never really, and especially once I realized how many people were paying attention. <laughs> like there was no, yeah, that, there's no graceful then, bow out. <laughs> yeah, then it becomes a whole other thing. <laughs> Which I did to myself, of right. course, but I did it casually without realizing. Well, that was part of, you know, me posting it on Instagram yeah. and the stories yeah. too. It's like, you can't back out, man. This no. is like public. Oh, I never was going to. And, and, um, and you know, in terms of like the why, because uh, Misty from Nantucket called in. We're, she's not gonna. We're not gonna play her question, but her question was basically, "Did I, did I find a why?" Because mm-hmm. I couldn't answer that, and she said, "You scolded me." And uh, did I scold you? Well, she said I was you, challenging you. <laughs> you challenged me. Um, so my why, I still didn't really figure it out in the moment, partly because the pacers take some of that introspection away which I don't think is a bad thing. It's just the way it goes. When you have a friend next to you mm-hmm. in life, you're just not thinking about yourself as much. Um, but listening to Stephen Pressfield on your podcast and just thinking about and what, what you guys were talking about around uh, finding your hero's journey and going through that hard thing and thinking about my life, which you know for a long time was defined by you know, travel and, and going to different cultures and, and mm-hmm. being kind of alone in those scenarios and having the pandemic come through and that's completely wiped out. And then of course, life changes. Um, you know, I, I do think there was part of me was just hungry for some test like that, a test of self. Um, and and so I, th- I do think that was like this subconscious pull. I didn't realize yeah. it. I didn't even think about it when she when I got her message. I thought about it listening to, to you guys talk mm-hmm. about it. And um, I do think there's something there that there was a call to action and to find out what was inside me to see if I could do it. And the fact that I could do it, stay good humored and stay positive, I think is a, mm-hmm. is a good, it's a good feeling. I'm satisfied with that answer. Yeah. I'm not gonna scold you All right. on that. I think what happens is, yeah, you have that pull, that call to yeah. doing something hard and then you do it. And what that does is put another brick in the wall of uh, this identity that you craft around being somebody who does hard things. Like mm. I do hard, like I do hard things. I can do hard things. Yeah. I, I'm not afraid of the degree of difficulty or the um, unknown of something I've never experienced before. Yeah, I welcome that into my life. And each one of those experiences that you have is like another like notch in the belt that I think leads to greater self-esteem and kind of how you you know navigate the world in every other facet of your life. Mm. I do feel like I got a self-esteem bump. Like I felt it like the next couple, the day after I was a bit of a wreck, you uh-huh. know, and I had a deadline. I was Did like, you ever any, that, have any like grumpy, grousy moments where you were like short with April or like, no, no. no. That's what happens to me. Yeah. But you, I mean, I think part of that is I didn't push myself to the edge mm-hmm. in terms of pace. I was very relaxed in my pace. So um, I was worried about you at one moment because you were talking about how your knee was acting up. Yeah. And I just didn't want you to bury yourself and injure yourself right. because you felt the public pressure of completing this thing. 
Well, I would have kept going. You know, yeah. even if the knee was a problem, I would have walked. You know, I wasn't going to stop. So, mm. um, you know, when you when you work with David Goggins, you don't stop when your knee no. dies a little bit. <laughs> and since you are working with David Goggins, you can't not. You couldn't have not done this anyway, right? Well, I could have. I mean, I, I mean, I, David didn't put any pressure on you personally. No, did he? I brought it up to him, and then once I brought it up to him, it was. It was basically a done with. deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, he was really. I mean, let's let's put it this way: in this time where everyone's so polarized and at each other's throats, he creates this thing. Some thirty thousand people. Is that how around, many people? Yeah, it's mm. like in the twenty to thirty range. I think closer to thirty um, signed up to do this thing. This really hard thing all together. There's a real feeling of unity among the people that were doing it. Um, camaraderie. Uh, and you know, it just shows what what if you focus in versus focusing out, the positive repercussions are, I think, mm -hmm. impossible to calculate, and mm -hmm. it's just a ripple effect. And uh, you know, so kudos to David for recognizing that, seeing that, leading that, um, and yeah, definitely he was leading. I was checking in with him on his Instagram stories every time, and then afterwards, I had a little debrief with him, but not during. You know, during right. I kind of. It was left to my own devices and him too. And he was doing a bunch of pull-ups and push-ups in addition to all of this too. So yeah, right? so he he was doing a combo of of like a circuit because he's he's recovering from injury, which I'm sure he'll get into at some stage. Uh -huh. But um, but so he did. So a he circuit. Didn't, he wasn't running because he's got to run. He was on or? treadmill sometimes, and then he was doing uh -huh. stair mat. He was doing a circuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Twenty to thirty thousand people. I think it also speaks to. You know, we're in this moment where there's no races, right? Yeah. Like normally people would be signing up for this or that. And, um, you know, without that being available to people, they have turned to these virtual events and that kind of uh, digital community that can be created this way. It's pretty cool. It is cool. And, and people raised, you know, millions of dollars for different charities. Right. So and everyone was kind of raising money for their own various whatever. Yeah. And he put out a story like last year, he's always said, if running, if you can't run, get on a bike. If you can't bike, you know, do, do whatever mm -hmm. you can. He pointed out to a guy who was 500 pounds when he heard about this last year. And his whole goal every four hours was just to get up out of his chair as much as he, as, as many times as he could every, every four hours. And so he did that. A year later, he's 300 pounds and he was running it. Wow. That's cool. So it just shows you, you don't have to do it that way. You could mm -hmm. have done, you know, if you have a Peloton at home, go do that at a low pace or right. um, walk around the block, you know, 10 times, whatever it is. So where does that leave you? You've got some momentum now. You just did this hard thing. Does it does it make you enthusiastic to keep it up, continue it? Yeah. Put it into figure out a, another new challenge? Well, yes. Yeah. So uh, shout out also, also to Nicholas Ramirez who, I've been talking to you about my goals. Uh, and Your Envol coach. The Envol coach, the team Envol, who's a champion swim runner and has this uh, or this team, swim run team called Team Envol. And you could join it for a pretty cheap price and he gives, he gives kind of group workouts or you could work with him personally and he can give you some personalized stuff. And I was telling him my goal, one of my main goals is just to get faster at zone two. And he told me this little tale that uh, many years ago, his whole thing was to try to get a sub three marathon. And it was like, took him to his ultimate limit to barely get under sub three. And then last Saturday on an empty stomach, a little bit hungover, and 
just delivering something across town in Stockholm, he decided to run there and back instead uh-huh. of driving. Ran a marathon in zone two and a little bit in zone three at under three hours. Wow. And just the the fact that the human body can do that. And it just inspired me a bit more. So I'm definitely interested in continuing that zone two journey to see to see how comfortable I can get running. Um, because for so many years I was uncomfortable running. So right. I would do it anyway. Um, and uh, but in terms of activities, we're looking at cactus to clouds. Hopefully, you know, my wife can break away from the baby long enough to where we could do that together. What is that? And that is a ten thousand foot elevation climb from the desert to the top of San Jacinto Peak mm. in, the de- in in Palm Springs. Out in area. Palm Springs, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so cool. I'm thinking about that for the fall, and then Otulo Catalina. Right, that's in, November, right? that's in November, right? That's in November. Yeah. Are the pools open in Santa Monica? Is Santa Monica know. College open? Oh, you, you don't. You never go to the. You never swim in the pool, do you? I don't go to pools. <laughs> you might want to think about that. I know that's my next. That's my yeah. next talking to. <laughs> Team Envil might have an idea or two. No, he doesn't mind me going in the ocean. Yeah, he's like just do my drills in the ocean, mm. and I'm like, so far my drills are just swim there. The great thing by. about Point Doom is that it it's the only like part of the coastline in our vicinity that approximates a swim run experience right. because you have, you know, that steep ascent, you know, up the cliff and right. all of that. Where, where, whereas most of the shoreline around here is very flat. That's so right. it's hard to really get a proper swim run workout that's gonna approximate the kind of terrain you're gonna have in one of those races. Yeah, I mean, most of my, if I'm just swimming, I usually just go right right down uh, in the Palisade somewhere. Right. But, um, but Doom is, mm-hmm. is kind of, I did, cha- when, I, when I was training for Catalina, I did use Doom and that's probably what I would do right. again, yeah. Are you I, gonna do Catalina this year? Uh, I think so. I've done no swimming though. Like I, you know, unlike that's you. Like your, that's your, that, you don't need to. Yes, I do. Well, you will, but you don't need to now for November. Yeah, I would like to be able to do that. I mean, there are some pools open, but you gotta fill out these online forms and schedule your time way ahead of time. And my week, the way it unfolds, every day is different. And I would go through periods of, you know, filling out time slots throughout the week and right. then only hitting like one out of the five or whatever. And it's just, you know, that's my own stuff or whatever. There, there are pools open. You just have to be, I have to be a little bit more organized about my training than I have been. Yeah. And they only let you in for like 45 minutes. Right. And that's not enough for you. Not enough. But you know, it's better than nothing. I mean, I've just been, I've been, I've been really enjoying gravel riding. That's been my thing lately. So I'm just building a base on the bike right now and exploring all these trails that um, I've never experienced on two feet. Like Mm. this whole world has opened up to me, which has been really fun. Maybe a um, Sandy, a Tijuana to, uh, Vancouver ride is in your future. I don't know what's, I don't know what is in my future. <laughs> um, I do, shifting gears a little bit, I do wanna shout out the Iron Cowboy. Yes. We're, today's Monday, what's the date today? The 12th? No. The 13th. The 13th. 15th. 15th. The 15th. Today's 15th. the 15th. 15th. Um, James is on, as of today, day 15 mm. of his attempt to do 100 mm. Ironmans in 100 days. Um, he's been sharing all of this on Instagram. Like the, the stories, I watch them every day. It's pretty cool. Like um, to see him just get up every single day and, and do an Ironman. He's been going strong and he's not without his challenges. I mean, he like, I think on like the third or fourth day, his ankle had swollen up 
such that anybody in their right mind would have pulled the plug on this mm. thing. And he was just walking the marathons until in his mind, the way he articulated it, like his body, you know, sort of clicked in and adapted to what he was trying to do. And now he's back to running. And, you know, this is all happening in the, on the outskirts of Provo, Utah. So the other day, the whole thing, it was snowing and sleeting right. like all day. And he's out there with a smile on his face, high vibes, tons of community. It's cool to see so many people turn out every single day to do a leg or a portion with him. Um, and he's getting it done. Like the guy's Amazing. just an absolute machine. But I think most impressive is, is like this positive attitude that he's mm. been. I mean, he's like, he's, he's on his 15th consecutive Ironman, but he's still got 85 to go, you know? Like, how <laughs> <Exactly>. do you, you know, <laughs> it's just unbelievable to wrap your head around I that. I now have a, 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 a like a minuscule taste of that kind of thinking though. Like right. that that must be the, in any ultra event, that's how it is, right? You've done, you just, you, here we go, run, this is what we're doing. You ran a marathon, you're, you're now you have to run still 110 more to finish Badwater. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. He did have, uh, I think, with uh, with all the the weather, the inclement weather, um, that that definitely presented some challenges. And he posted on Instagram uh, a caption: "Today, James. Today, James Lawrence goes away, and the Iron Cowboy comes to life." And I love that that idea of the alter ego. Mm. This is something that um, I spoke about with Todd Herman, who's an author who was on the podcast a couple of years ago. He wrote a book called The Alter Ego Effect which is all about this idea of um, kind of transposing your identity into this, you know, superhuman um, like avatar. And this is something that David does, Goggins mm -hmm. does, mm -hmm. right? Goggins. It's like, right. there's David and then there's Goggins, right? right? And, right. and he, goes into, he goes into Goggins when he does these things. Like it's, it's almost, it's not fair to call it a character, but it's something outside of the self that allows you to create like a, an arm's length relationship with the feat that you're trying to accomplish um, that I think is empowering and mm. instructive in terms of how you, and it, it's not like somebody told David, create an alter ego no. for yourself or told James create an, it's like these were just natural like survival tactics that they crafted in order to survive these difficult challenges. Right. And I think it's cool, it's empowering um, as a means of helping you you know, exceed your sense of personal uh, limitations. Yeah. So much like, love to James, AKA the Iron Cowboy. Amazing. That's an amazing, amazing effort. How, how long are his times? Is he sharing his times? Yeah, it's like all on Strava and there's a live tracker and they're very transparent about all of it. I mean, he's going slow. Like he'll, you know, his marathons are like six hours, right. you know, or, you know, five and a half hours or something, or his bike rides the same. It's like, it's just about like, look, I got the whole day to do this. Yeah. I just have to do it such that I get enough sleep. Like you know, that's enough. And Eight recovery hours. in between. And he's got so much community around him. Like tons of people are showing up every day. And then in his house, he's got PTs and his family and his kids are involved. Like his daughter is always on the Instagram talking about the live tracker and where you can meet up with him. So if anybody wants to go and, support this guy, you can just show up in Linden, Utah and you know, <laughs> go ride your bike with him or go run with him. Incredible. So very you, cool. This party you wanna get out there? I might at some point, we'll see. I mean, I did it last time when he, when he right. was finishing his 50. Uh, I showed up in Utah and ran the final marathon with him. Amazing. 
either way, whatever happens, he's definitely coming back on the podcast to tell us about it if he survives. No doubt. And I have no doubt that that he's he will gonna, survive. He's gonna make it. Yeah, he is. It's incredible. It is incredible. It I've is. never even heard of anything close to that. Unbelievable, yeah. right? Yeah. And he's just banging him out like, oh, another Iron Man, another Iron Man every single day. It just becomes normal. Yeah, on the same loop, like the mental drudgery of all of it as well. You know, the same loop is good though. Like I use the same loop for my, I mean, terrible comparison, right. but for my little thing. Are you thing. comparing yourself <laughs> no, to the Iron Cowboy not, right I'm now? Not. But the point is, is like some people said, one piece of advice was use different routes. Mm -hmm. But I, I found that uh, I used one different route uh, and it was just, it was actually distracting. You always know what to expect. Yeah. And you can mark, you know, how you, like mentally you take notes, like this is how I felt last time when I crossed this intersection yeah. and this is how I feel now. But again, thank you to everybody who support because like I was really surprised and your community was it's like great. fully rallied. Well, it's a huge accomplishment. I'm proud of you. Thanks, I'm proud man. of Jason, Jason, Jason. Camiolo, uh, who also did it as well. Um, so lots of love here for all you it guys. It was nothing for him. He's done hundred milers. He has, but his whole thing is like, he just shows up and does it. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Know? Which is <laughs> its own form of very impressive. Yeah. I, th I think he was worried about me after the midnight, <laughs> the second midnight when I didn't turn up. Like he's like, what happened to him? <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, all right, well, let's take a break cool. and we'll be back with uh, the big story. The big story. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health from fermented food, to fiber and everything in between, including of course the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer that seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, 
procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, and we're back. Adam. Yes, sir. Do you know what an NFT is? I do now. It's unbelievable what's happening with all of this, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's literally unbelievable. I, I could not believe it when I heard about it. Right, I'm fascinated by this. I wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive. I will couch the conversation to come with a disclaimer that I am the furthest thing from an expert in the blockchain or anything crypto. Right. So right. this is definitely coming from a layperson's uh, you know, perspective in every regard. So, to the extent that that we get anything wrong here, and I'm sure that we will, you know, don't don't at me with this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, don't bother all the crypto heads <laughs> who get pissed off because we've mischaracterized <laughs> something here, which I'm sure we will. Don't bother us with our own ignorance. We're aware. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm self aware of my limitations. Yeah. Um, all right, NFTs. For people that don't know, uh, this is all about ownership rights to at least right now digital art, ephemera, and media. Mm-hmm. It's really one of the craziest aspects of an already insane year. Um, And I think under, maybe not underappreciated or underreported, but perhaps um, not discussed enough is 
the complete upending of finance that we've been seeing, not just with the insane swings of, of Bitcoin and, and crypto and all these surges, but also with the whole Robinhood GameStop thing mm-hmm. and the kind of crowdsourcing of energy around stock purchases, uh, the advent of, of SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies that are like the new hot thing in M&A. We don't need to get into all that, but like there's a lot of interesting things happening. No, but can I say something about that? Finance right now. Like SPACs, like there was literally the Jay-Z story about how he started his own SPAC and all the stars were Mm -hmm. doing it. And then immediately it's wiped off the front pages of business when the NFT story breaks. Like you're not even hearing about them anymore. There's a lot of SPAC activity though. And I only know the, you know, the very surface level of like what all of that entails. Mm -hmm. But we're gonna talk about NFTs today. Um, what is an NFT? So Rich? an NFT is, it's funny. I, I was uh, riding bikes with a buddy of mine mm. the other day, who's a big private equity guy. And I was mm. like, let's talk about NFTs. And I started talking and he was like, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, you're a money guy. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> like a, this finance guy, yes. this was like news to him, yeah. which made me more uh, enthusiastic about talking about it today. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's a lot of people that really have either never heard of this or only caught you know, a, a headline about right. a crazy, you know, price that was paid for a piece of digital art. Right. So an NFT, uh, NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's an asset verified using blockchain technology in which a network of computers records transactions and gives buyers proof of authenticity and ownership. The current boom is mostly for digital assets like images, gifts, songs, videos. Uh, and it's different from crypto in that crypto is fungible, you can use it as a mode of, you can use it as a currency, as a, as a method of exchange, but an NFT cannot be traded at equivalency. Because it's unique, it's one of right. one. And in diving into the history of all of this, I mean, I, you know, I don't know about you, but the first time that I came across uh, an NFT was watching Feels Good Man when it got to the rare Pepe's thing. And right. I was like, what is this? I didn't quite put it together there. And then and then it jumps to this story with um, Beeple, which we'll get into, but like right. I, that's when it kind of first hit my face. But now now that you mention it, yes, we heard about it in Feels Good Man, but I just didn't think right. about it. In, and in I, and I, I thought like, well, that's gotta be the craziest, most fringe thing ever. Right. And in the, the period of time in between that documentary and now, like it's, Become a completely different can of worms. Now Matt should 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 drop. Pepe I think that he is like oh, those guys did post something. I wish I'd looked at it before we were talking today, but they posted something on Instagram about how somebody you know somebody did an NFT around something related to Pepe, and it got the, the it garnered an amount of money that would have financed their entire movie. Really? But Matt, but Matt should make all of his artwork, even the print that he gave to the studio here to us, that should definitely be an NFT. Well, here it is, rarest Pepe, most important NFT in in art history. I'm looking it up right now, and it sold for 320 grand. Wow, yeah. So real money is getting exchanged for these things. Uh, in diving into the history of all of this, like all things internet, of course, it started with cats mm. because everything important about the internet begins with cats, right? Begins and ends with cats. It's going <laughs> yeah, to end with cats. It's end with cats, right? <laughs> so the technology has been around since the mid 2010s, but it didn't hit the mainstream until around 2000, 2017 with mm. CryptoKitties, which was a site that allowed people to buy and breed, quote unquote, breed 
limited edition digital cats with cryptocurrency, oh right? Which sounds so weird, but fast forward to now, <laughs> and weird, Christie's but... is auctioning Beeple's, you know, piece of piece of art, and it goes for how much did it go for? 63, 69, 69 million, million. $69 million. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to wrap my head around what that means. Like what exactly is being conveyed in terms of ownership? What's interesting is there is no acquisition of trademark or copyright or even sole ownership. It's really bragging rights and knowledge that your copy, if you purchase something is the quote unquote authentic one, which is, a mind bender given that these works don't exist in the three-dimensional world. Right. These are digital works that are easily replicated. Like you could just take that JPEG and copy it a bazillion times, slide it onto your desktop. But it's the idea that this is the authentic one and it's locked on the blockchain and you're the one who has the certificate of authenticity or ownership of that. The internet is the museum, the art is, in the in the museum of the internet, and mm -hmm. everyone can see it because they're also on the at the museum. But you're the one that owns it, right? Right, which is still weird. It's still yeah. <laughs> it's like it bends it bends why, the why noodle completely. Right. Yeah, like why? Right, own it? right. What's also interesting is that um, you can then sell portions of it like a stock. Mm. You could sell like a percentage of ownership of your NFT. Okay. to a variety of people. So it becomes like uh, like the mortgage. Well, it could, do, it could be, yeah, I mean, there, it becomes a financial asset in right. a very interesting way, right. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as a 54 year old man trying to wrap his head around this, it's very easy to be dismissive or cynical or just right. think this is all insanity. Um, but when you think about it, this is the future. And I think it portends much more than a change in how we think about the art world, it really brings up a broader conversation about what ownership means in the digital age as we you know, slowly progress towards this matrix-like existence, mm -hmm. exacerbated of course by the pandemic where we're all at home and we're living our lives more and more online than ever, right? So right. rather than you know, going to the fancy store and buying a wristwatch that's gonna impress your friends, the version of the digital version of that is owning a piece of artwork on the blockchain. Right, because- you In the digital world, because we're all interacting digitally now. Right, and it's interesting that you're saying that. It's like, uh, because if, it's, if, it, if it changes the way like, would you rather own a piece of a multinational company or some digital art piece and trade that as your commodity? You know right. what I mean? Like it changes what commodities are too. It actually democratizes art ownership in ways mm -hmm. if they're gonna start taking away pieces of the $69 million thing and you can own a piece of it. Right. And um, cause I don't think you can do that with, with art on a wall anymore mm -hmm. uh, or before. I don't know, I think it's interesting. It's uh, at the same time, it's kind of like, the epitome of manufactured need. But that's what all consumer goods are on some level. Like if you look at, like look at, look at the companies that are thriving, particularly during the pandemic, and they're the ones that are very good at manufacturing demand by, by sort of messaging around limited supply, right. like a sneaker drop, right? right? Like, right. 
like the sneaker that goes for $500 because it's a limited run costs the same to manufacture as the one that's at the outlet store. It's like right. $5 of plastic or right. whatever and, you know, <laughs> it's a great rubber. comparison. Yeah. And yet one is lauded and coveted and the other one is is, you know, basically um, considered Inve- you know, not valuable at all. Why is that? It's all imagined. Right, it, like it's like baseball card values. Right. It's all, but baseball but card baseball values cards are, are limited because there's limited. only there's only so many players. Right. right. Because like the Honus Wagner card, which is the most valuable card, he only allowed a certain amount to be printed because he didn't want to do business with the cigarette companies. Right. 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 And so, right. so he and so because of that, it, it it was this need that was created by the moment, and there's only a few. And in all other cases, there's so many, but only a few survive because people throw them away. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes collectible or like the same idea with, with um, what's it called? Action figures and that right. kind of market. Right. Um, and in sneakers, similar idea. But in the digital landscape, there's no limitation on supply. Right. Right, it could be anything. And right now all the attention is around art and in particular, this work by this artist called Beeple He's got this piece called the first 5,000 days. It's a collage of 5,000 images that he created like using some kind of, he's like a digital artist. And right. each one of these little images that are a composite of this larger work are all very interesting in their own right. Christie's, the you know white shoe auction house auctioned off. It's not the first time that they've auctioned off an NFT, but it's definitely the, the, the biggest one that they've done. And this thing went for 69.3 million. Mm. It was purchased using Ethereum, which is the preferred crypto for NFTs mm-hmm. in this NFT like economy by, I mean, it just gets weirder by a guy called Metacovan. Like we don't even know his real name, <laughs> right? It Who claims like that he got it at a steal. Right. And that makes Beeple the third highest selling artist alive. Right, so, and no one had wild. ever heard of Beeple. Really. Right, so like, I mean, street artists did. There were right. pe- in the people in the digital art world knew who he was, but right. it's not like Jackson Pollock or right. Picasso. No, he, Picasso. <laughs> no, Picasso never did that well on one piece. I don't think he, until his, he died. His, <laughs> he missed the NFT boom. Yeah, um, you know, I think you're you've hit the nail on the head with with, with the pandemic playing into this because art galleries were closed, art dealers didn't know what to do. Um, Artists didn't have an outlet to sell their wares in any way. NFT has created a way for digital artists to sell something without having to put it in a gallery. Um, And not only sell something, but sell something at such a high price point that Mm -hmm. they never had before. And so Mm -hmm. now everyone's, look, Pepe the Frog, everyone's going for it because it's a gold rush. Um, There's one aspect to it that um, is getting a little bit of buzz, but not as much as like the big price price tags. I, something I never knew was native to blockchain and, and all cryptocurrency, but just the fact that there is a huge carbon footprint associated with blockchain, right? which I never knew about really until I started looking into this. Uh, basically the idea of mining, which is what you do when you have, when you're creating cryptocurrency or any sort of blockchain is uh, you have a, a huge amount of computer power being sucked by this network of computers that are running millions and millions of cryptographs, which is basically checking each block in the chain for sequencing errors, Mm -hmm. making sure they're all original and minting a transaction. A transaction meaning here's this new string of letters and numbers 
that is completely unique. Blockchain is is being used not just in art and in currency. It's been used. There's people who want to use it for voting. There's people who want to use it for uh, or are. It is being used in fish in fisheries right now mm -hmm. to be able to authenticate where a certain um, harvest is coming from and which fishery. I know that's happening. So, you know, the fact that it's being used all this way and there is a carbon footprint is interesting. Um, Ethereum is really bad. It's not the worst of the cryptocurrencies, but it's really bad when it comes to its carbon footprint. Um, and a Turkish digital artist named Memo Akton, I hope I'm pronouncing that um, correctly, with a PhD in artificial intelligence. So a pretty smart dude. Right. Um, he started seeing everything in the NFTs and he was excited about it like everybody else. And then he started looking into the crypto uh, carbon footprint. And what he found out was a single NFT transaction demands the same amount of energy an average European Union household would need for an entire month. Right, the average NFT. Right. So that's going to that's going to run the gamut of course. But Right, but that, the, that, the the main point just being that like there's a huge carbon footprint here and it just seems like oh it's all happening digitally. Right. And what we don't see is what's powering this whole thing which well, demands a tremendous amount of energy and computing power. Right, and the sum of all these 18,159 NFTs has consumed an average EU resident's electricity consumption of 2,000 years, mm -hmm. uh, using a laptop for 54,000 years, boiling a kettle 78 million times. I mean, just crazy. This is all from Memo's great, great medium post. Um, there's another artist who, uh, a French artist who it became a climate activist, his name is Johnny Le Mercier, he's, uh, and he's based out of Belgium. And he has been an artist for a long time, digital artist, has, had, has his own studio in Belgium. And, but when he became a climate activist, he used his art to kind of highlight issues with climate. And um, but he dropped some NFTs. And uh, he was approached by Memo and explained what was happening mm -hmm. and how it, it kind of impacts. Because he's, he's taken his studio and he's done a lot of work on that studio to make it as energy efficient as possible. And he found out that his first NFT drop consumed more energy in 10 seconds than his studio had in almost two years. Wow. So the, like, it's a crazy amount of energy. I mean, yeah. Who, who knew? For something that doesn't exist in the real world. For something that doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah, that's that just bends the noodle even further to even like appreciate or understand that, that just because something is online, like we think it's just, there's, there's a seamlessness to it. Yeah. And there's no kind of real world repercussions to it. But there's real world the repercussions, way, right? but there's no real world thing. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is even weirder. It, it's, it's weird. I do know that, that Ethereum is, is, is working or planning to cut right. this absurd energy consumption yeah. with plans to reduce it by 99%. And I don't know enough about blockchain to know how that would be accomplished or how realistic that is. I would suspect though with with advances in technology and 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 creating greater scale that they will figure this out at some point. Do you have a sense of where things stand with that? So uh, basically the pushback from Ethereum and Super Rare, which is one of the platforms where you can buy these NFTs is that, you know, if you read that, you're assuming that there's no carbon footprint associated with regular art dealing, which there is with, you know, miles of travel and mm -hmm. airfare and all that. But in reality, that still would pale in comparison. Um, to what's happening. Uh, Ethereum has a new software they've been working on. I think it's called 2.0. They, they wanna cut their carbon footprint. This new software will allow them to do that. 
it's not out yet. There's mm -hmm. no, there's no, you know, two years ago they were told, it, we were told it was happening, and now it's two years now. Now it's two years yeah. away from being two years away, which is probably where it stands. So yeah. I don't, I'm not an expert in that. Um, I can't really say when it'll be available, but they're not saying it's coming around the mm -hmm. corner. So they're saying they're working on it. Right. Yeah. Hopefully they'll figure that out. Yeah. Um, and and the idea is if it scales it should be able to be worked right. out. But that's like the excuse we use for a lot of things as human beings. It's, it's, you know, yes, it's a problem now, but when it scales, it's gonna be a lot easier. This is something I talked yeah. about with Alex on the podcast yeah. the other day. That's an argument that comes up to poo-poo renewables, right? right? Because when you have a renewable, um, you still have to sort of supplant the old technology and there's gonna be, you know, a carbon footprint to that that's gonna exceed what it will eventually become if you just continue to push it forward. Mm. So that's part of the evolution as well. Yeah. It's like a transaction cost that's built into it. I don't know. In well, the that, case that's of Ethereum, say. I don't that's know enough about it people, to know. The super rare people are saying that same thing is that like people are using the climate deal as an excuse to not change the world. Mm. But my question would be, do you know how this world changes from here? Because the, what happens is, it's 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 the unintentional consequences of of good intentions. Like I'm not saying the intention is to ruin the environment. I'm saying it's an unintended consequence of something that they think is great for the right, world. Right. And and that is like basically the recipe for a lot of disasters that mm -hmm. we've had. Um, so you know the idea of thinking a hundred years down the line is not something that's happening in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right, and, yeah. and never has in America really um, mm -hmm. since you know the native cultures are kind of subjugated because that you know thinking what happens after you're gone three generations seven generations later right seven generations um, that's something that we don't do it would be nice to start doing that considering th where we're at in the environment and mm -hmm. climate crisis mm -hmm. the uh, the energy around um, NFTs has been in the context of, of art and the art world. But I think what's more interesting, that's just like NFT 1.0, mm. which is where we're at right now um, with pieces being auctioned. There's all these sites where you can, they call it minting, like you can upload your work and then uh, hold it out for sale or auction, all these sites like foundation, foundation.app. Um, but we're also seeing Twitter posts being turned yes. into uh, NFTs. Jack Dorsey is turned his first tweet into an NFT mm. and it's at like 2.5 million for charity. Uh, Logan Paul did a run of like collectible cards, you know, and musicians, Dead Mouse, um, Grime, Steve Aoki, Kings of Leon, mm. Three Lao, this guy like uh, got 11.7 million on NFTs related wow. to like an old album where he was also providing access to new music and and like a vinyl version of some of his work. So I think the the it's we're going to see it um, expand into other areas of creative expression beyond just like digital visual art. Right? So like the first episode of the Ritual podcast. And I think well, I, it's funny because I I thought about that like Kevin Rose just launched a new podcast called Modern Finance, which is all about like crypto and NFTs. And he made that initial episode in NFT. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool. Maybe I should make the very first episode of this podcast in NFT. The environmental 
considerations that get packed into that are probably going to prevent me from doing that right now. But it would be cool, right? Just to experiment and right. see what would happen. Um, I really wanna understand the, 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 the environment um, implications of that before I do that. But I think where we're gonna see value is in artists or creators who create an NFT that isn't just the thing itself, but also packed into it are all these other kind of benefits. Like if you're a band or a musician, if you purchase this limited run of NFTs, you also get a backstage pass or you get, you know, you'll you'll get the new you'll get access to the new music first or all these other things that can be built into the blockchain because part of part of what the benefit of the blockchain is is you can create these contracts, right? Mm-hmm. That that work in lockstep with technology. So when when X happens, then Y gets this. Um, and uh, as we see this kind of um, ecosystem become more robust and mature, I think the the broader implications on culture beyond just oh this painting, you know this digital work of art sold for this mo- this much, um, is going to be impacting all of us. And I think to kind of telescope out even more, it's an interesting philosophical exploration of what ownership means. And we were talking about supply and demand, like how do we think about the material world and the digital world in terms of our relationship to it? And this is bringing up a new way of seeing all of that. And I find that to be like endlessly fascinating. I mean, there are, this, there are these guys called Burnt Banksy that own Banksy paintings, at least one of them, and like burned the banks, like scanned a, a work of Banksy, burned the original, and then minted the scan as an NFT and sold it for like three times the value of the actual original physical three-dimensional piece of art. So what does that tell you about how we think about ownership and value? What does it tell you? Well, I think that it's changing. I think that we're, I think it's, I think that it is an indication that we are inching closer and closer to the matrix. Like we're, mm. we're entering into this liminal space between the material world and the digital world where we're grappling with, with you know, how we want to live our lives. Mm. Are we living them here in the here and now in the tactile world or are we living them as avatars in this digital space? And the pandemic has accelerated something that I think was an inevitability but the fact that we're seeing more people value these things in the digital space more than they value things in the real world is a very interesting concept. It's fascinating because like really in the end, you and I can still go and see these same things online with a click of the mouse. Right, and, and but the argument is you can see, you can do that with the Mona Lisa as well. Well, you have to go to the Louvre. Well, yeah, but you can see a JPEG of it. Right. Like why would you, why do people line up in front of the Mona Lisa and take a photo of it? It's Leonardo da Vinci's charisma. Is that, is that what it is? <laughs> um, you know I, what I mean? Like, yeah. like there's it's, plenty it's, of photos of it. It's, 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 yeah. What really? And at why the heart would you want to? Why would you right. want to own that painting right. when there are images of it? And you, you can, you can eat with one click. You can find, you can enjoy an image of the right. Mona Lisa. Yeah, like, like. What so is how it? is this different? It's, it's like. Our, our art is freighted with history and stories, right? So we're told, we're told things about where a piece of art comes from and who made it and all that together creates a certain amount of value, right? Plus the rarity aspect of it. 
And I guess the same thing is true in the digital world. We're just, I just have a hard time. Like, cause you can also get an NFT of sports highlights and they're selling for a lot of money, mm -hmm. like uh, a lot of money, like a million, right. millions of dollars in NBA highlights. Right, the NBA. So you can own yeah. a highlight, like a poster. You, like I used to put a Michael Jordan poster on my wall. I can now own a Michael Jordan highlight in NFT. But mm -hmm. what is that? Like I can go on what YouTube. What is the value of being the original certified authentic owner of that clip? In my, in my estimation, it's zero. Like I that does nothing for me in my life. Like, mm -hmm. but, um, but you know, I. Could the argument, and I'm just saying yeah. this from a perspective of, of, of being a devil's advocate, how is that different from, from owning the Mona Lisa? when it's a ubiquitous image? Yeah, it's a good question. It goes back to feeling right. and ego yeah. more than anything else, right? The, the ownership ego? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a crypto punk sensibility that's at yes. play here too. Yeah, like yes. let's blow up the system and and we're gonna, you know, I'm, you know, Mr. Ethereum gajillionaire is gonna buy this, Digital work for an insane amount of money, as a as like a as like an fu to everything you ever thought about the art world, right? Because he can, and that's very punk rock. It is, and, and there's something cool about that. Also, yeah. like let's blow up the system and just reimagine this entire structure. It's all online and digital, and it's unhackable. Because mm -hmm. that's the idea is like a blockchain. That's why it's it's good is that it's unhackable, right? Right. You can't you can't hack it. But but it's also important to understand that this is very early days, and there's no question that this is like a crazy bubble. It's like Internet 1.0, right? right? Like this is going to blow up. There's some people that are going to make a lot of money, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to lose a lot of money, and this will sort itself out and over time mature into. Uh, a more kind of um, robust ecosystem. But right now I find it to be very, like if you were gonna spend an insane amount of money on a digital work of art right now, like that is so risky, I, crazy I risky, well, right? The, 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 so Seth the, Godin wrote about this. I don't know yeah. if you saw his piece. Yep. He's basically saying his, the title is NFTs are a dangerous trap, which is basically walking you through this bubble idea. Yeah, he thinks it's a bubble. And there's another aspect of it that's um, dangerous in that even though the NFT itself will be certified as one of one, you actually don't know if the seller is the creator. So there's a rights mm. aspect to it because it's, it, the, it's, what's lagging behind is the authenticity of the seller. Right. Because right now people are using, you know, avatars and, mm -hmm. and handles and you don't but know But I who do they think are. What, what, if, there, if there's another thing to celebrate about all of this, it's the empowerment of the creator, right? right? Like the artist no longer has to be hat in hand. It puts the creator of artistic works in more of control over the destiny of the work that they create. Yes. And it allows them to get value for it. And you know, this can be anything. Like you could write a series of short stories or a book and do a limited run as NFTs. Like there's so many different variations on this that I think we're going to start seeing. So this is just the very beginning right. and I think it's only gonna continue to get more and more fascinating. So like the on the road scroll is NFT? On the road scroll, You know what that, that? There was a famous uh, Jack Kerouac glued or taped pages together so that when he was uh, riding high on Benzedrine, 
his first draft of on the road it like came spooling out of him and in mm. in a matter of like a, you know a couple of weeks or something and he had it on a scroll so that he never had to add type uh paper to his typewriter and he just kept going kept going and that scroll ended up getting edited down over the course of months or over right. a year and it became the manuscript but that scroll itself w was uh and the scroll itself was republished eventually, but it was bought by a collector. The guy who owns the Indianapolis Colts bought it. And he, uh, and the scroll has all the characters as the people who they really were, mm -hmm. Jack and Neil Cassidy and all those. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so that scroll is the original because it's one of one. Right, but that's the antithesis of what we're talking about. Right. Because that is a, like, an, like a relic that exists in the real world. But you're, you were saying like, the, like an author could do that with his first manuscript, could, could mint or it. Or anything, and, yeah, like a, yeah. an author right now could just say, I'm not gonna publish my book with a traditional publisher. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it an NFT. And whoever wants to buy it can buy it. And then like those, if you're, what if Malcolm Gladwell said, I'm, my next book is gonna be an NFT. And then the, on pub day, he uploads it, he mints it on one of these sites. And then that's, that's it, that's it. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it exists in the digital world so you can copy it, right? But who, you know, would that at auction, would that go for a lot of money? I bet it would. Just one of one, just publish it one, one yeah. copy of his book. Yeah. And then let it replicate out. Yeah, and then let it replicate out and see what would happen. Would he still have the rights to? Yeah, because he's put, not transferring out... copyright. Okay. So it doesn't give the the owner, the buyer, permission to replicate it. Just have the only a certification that they have the authentic original copy of this. Right. That's... Even though originality is like the wrong word because something that exists in ones and zeros that can be duplicated with you know absolute precision begs the question of what original means to begin with. You are bending my do needle you think, right uh, now. Do you, think, do you think if Kerouac was around now that he would be into crypto? Um, <laughs> and like no. NFTs? <laughs> no, I don't, no, I don't. <laughs> All right, maybe we've talked enough about this for now. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna be keeping an eye on this. I think it's super interesting. It. This came up with, my conversation with with Kevin Roos too, because yeah. he was like, oh, I, I want to learn more about this. I want to write about this. I was like, you should write, you should write a book about NFTs and release it as an NFT, and it would be like this weird Charlie Kaufman adaptation, yeah. like meta experiment. Was he into it? I don't know. Maybe we'll see. You know, it does show that, like, like we had talked about on the phone earlier, Rich is like it's the cleaving of culture from. You're right about that. Like the, the crowbar of the digital world is cleaving culture from the from the original owners. So the creators, mm -hmm. but creators narrowly defined, like the creators that choose certain new mediums are the beneficiaries. And then people like your buddy, the hedge funder, or my friend, the screenwriter or whoever, these people who are used to things the way they used to be. And all of a sudden they don't even know you know, PewDiePie on YouTube is the most powerful person in media or right, whatever, or, right. or Joe Rogan is in, in podcasts. And like, when they get hip to it, yeah. that train has already left the station and they're gonna do everything that, that is in their power to hold, hold on to the reins of, you know, the traditional mechanisms yeah. because all of this is a threat to business as usual. Right. And that's frightening. If you're like, when I see Christie's doing what they just did with Beeple, like they're trying to be current and modern right. with where all of this is going. But if you're, 
you know, the competitor stodgy auction house and you're like NFTs, that's bullshit. We're not doing that. You're gonna get pushed out and antiquated pretty quickly. Yes. Cause this is where culture is heading. And the fact that this has been around for 10 years, it's now hitting this, this really interesting and strange inflection point, but the blockchain is not going away and no. it's gonna continue to revolutionize so many of, it's not just crypto and it's not just no. art. Like it's gonna, it's gonna have massive implications on how we do pretty much everything. Yeah, it already is in different ways. This, this, in this way, it's like, it still has that, that whiff of individuality, individual, individualism, not individuality, mm -hmm. individualism of look, look at me, look, look what I own. And um, which the internet is really good at. <laughs> right, I know. Can you imagine having enough Ethereum lying around that you could just shed $69 million worth of it uh, for a piece of digital art? I mean, how much, how much Ethereum does Metacoven have? More. If you can do that, right? <laughs> well, less, Which is less insane. Now, less now. <laughs> because, you know, if you were hoarding crypto way back right. in the day, like the amount of money that, that a lot of these people have right now is absolutely bananas. Do you have crypto? No, I had, I had like three or four Bitcoin years ago when I picked them up for like under, they, when, they were, when it was like under a thousand and then I was broke and I had to get rid of all of mm -hmm. it to like pay some bills. But I never, and, and I have friends way back who are always telling me, you've got it, you've got, you should be, you should right. be doing Bitcoin, you know? I, and it's I, always that like, you know, FOMO meets it's too late because now it's so high, but I yeah. think it's gonna continue to go up. I know, well, when, I, there was a period where we bought a little bit of crypto and we were like, we don't want, um, even Ethereum was like, it was so high. Like you end up with like a couple of, mm -hmm. of Ethereum or something like that. Right. Yeah, or percentages of Bitcoin. Instead we're like, no, let's find the one that might pop. So we have Ripple, but it hasn't popped. It hasn't popped. <laughs> well, I have other friends that spend way too much time just watching the graphs all day and yeah. trading in all these smaller cryptos and yeah. then putting it into Bitcoin and it monopolizes all their time and energy. Exactly. Uh, anyway. I'd rather be in the ocean. Right. Well, you're, yeah, all right. Okay, boomer. That's hey, the man, ultimate okay, it. boomer. <laughs> all right, let's switch gears here. We, got, we have a, a little news piece here that I know you wanted to share about. Oh, yes. Um, just a, a few minutes about it. Uh, I don't know if you've been keeping tabs, but there are mass protests in Myanmar. They've been going on for quite a while. Um, Myanmar is a country in Southeast Asia. It borders Thailand, China, India, Bangladesh. Um, and I've covered it quite a bit. There's been humanitarian crisis in, in Myanmar for generations. And basically what happened after World War II, um, you know, it was, a, it was an English colony after World War II, um, General Aung San, uh, tried to get all of these different ethnicities that were all part of this country called Burma at the time um, to to come together in a in a democratic self governing way, and he got all these different warring militias and ethnicities to come together and do it with the with the with the majority Burman population, and then he was murdered um, mm -hmm. right on the eve of the constitution kind of happening, and ever since then the military has controlled the country in in various degrees. And for for much of our lifetimes, it's been a straight up military dictatorship. Um, I've covered it in that these this same military has has been 
running people off their native lands and exploiting the natural resources for private gain. And when I mean private gain, I mean, they're actually take, the generals are actually taking money and just filling their bank accounts with mm -hmm. it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the crisis, uh, anyway, so fast forward to 2007, 2008, there was a big uprising. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest at the time and she was the freedom fighter. And, and there, was, there were mass protests then, but they were, they were stomped down pretty quickly by the military government. But a few years later, they decided to allow for voting again. And so they've allowed the, the political parties to engage in debate. And 25%, I believe, of the parliamentary seats are reserved for the military. But, but everyone else is competing and voting. And that mm -hmm. was the way it was. And Aung San Suu Kyi, this hero, was elected president. She's been president ever since then. Um, but then on February 1st, after another landslide victory for the NLD, National League of Democracy, which is Suu Kyi's party, um, she was arrested along with other leaders in the NLD um, and the military took over again for the first time in years. And, uh, and basically they've been using all sorts of cybersecurity um, technology to cra crack down on pro-democracy activists and party leaders and people have taken to the streets ever since February 1st. And at first there was tolerance of these peaceful protests, but then rubber bullets came out, tear gas came out, and now they're literally shooting into crowds and mm. dozens of people have been murdered uh, by security forces. Um, and that's where it's at right now. What is America's foreign policy stance towards Myanmar. So for years, when it was, the military was in charge and Suu Kyi was under house arrest for, you know, Su Aung San Suu Kyi is the daughter of General Aung San. And so she was this hero mm -hmm. that came, that rose up at different times to, to speak truth to power. She became this, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, as president, she's been, she's had her own problems because of the, uh, what's been happening in, in, with the, why am I spacing on the Rohingya population? Mm -hmm. uh, she was in power when the, mil the Myanmar military was running the Rohingya off their land. And she didn't speak up for the Rohingya at all. And all of a sudden people were calling for her Nobel prize back. So she's kind of, the, the, she sided with the military in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And she was doing that, I think, to preserve peaceful power sharing, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So not only did she sell her soul, but then she ends up getting under house arrest. And so for years when she was under house arrest the first time, the, it was a sanctions policy. So the, the, we sanctioned the, the Myanmar, we weren't helping them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, we were helping with some humanitarian stuff in the, the ethnic states that were at war because there was active war. Like these, there were militias in Shan state or Karin state where I visited. Uh, many times going to see displaced people in their displaced people's camps, spending time with, um, with rebel military. Um, there was active war uh, and there was some aid, but, but for lar largely our, our stance with the Myanmar government was mm -hmm. you know, sanctions. Right. And then when uh, Obama was in power and they gave power back to the people at, in various degrees, at first it was like 50% of the parliamentary seats, then it was 25%. Mm -hmm you know, the, uh, Obama was engaging and not just Obama, but Europe too. Europe started engaging with Myanmar. Myanmar's economy was growing and it was actually a really vibrant place to be because the people are wonderful and they want to engage and they want to grow and they, just, they just want freedom. And now it looks like it's coming back to where it used to right. be, where uh, certain people get rich and everyone else suffers. And what is, is the UN doing anything about this? 
right now everyone's sitting on their hands like what can you do short mm -hmm. of invading right. you know like what can you do and we never did invade because china has interests there um you, you know for the un to come up with a peacekeeping uh force you need to get the un security council needs to vote in favor and any one dissenting vote kills the resolution mm -hmm. so that that means china. china china does business with burma or myanmar and uh and china's not alone right um but yeah so how does this play out in your estimation it's a good question I, i'm kind of flagging it just so people kind of pay attention to what's happening um you know thanks to right now at, at first after the coup and i think it's still happening the news got cut off cable got cut off internet access was was spotty you have to find it mm -hmm. um in all of yangon the main major city there was one hotel that had interacts internet access for a little bit you know um i don't know i've been thinking of the business owners there and um what they're going through and what they're thinking like imagine sinking your life savings into a business there you mm -hmm. can't leave mm -hmm. because there's no money to leave with yeah and is there is there uh in egress though, are there refugees that are fleeing? No, I, I, have, I have not heard of mass refugees fleeing yet, but, but if they do, it'll be the Thailand border. That's how I always accessed it. You know, uh, I, I would go to Thailand and then get into the ethnic provinces from there, which right. a lot of journalists do. And you can do it legally. Um, so uh, we'll see. There's already refugee camps on the Thailand border that have stood for 20, 30 mm -hmm. years. But uh, people have left them and gone back and started businesses and, and, and mm. done well. Um, but now it's all coming mm. back around. And those same villages that people went back to are getting overrun by military again now. Right. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on this. Yeah, sorry. I feel like I'm talking too loud. I think you're all right. Okay. Jason will modulate you. <laughs> You'll end up sounding like butter. <laughs> Always. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver an RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, 
politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Let's do some listener questions. Let's do it. Hey, guys. This is Will from Portland, Oregon. I had a question. Uh, I was uh, vegan for a while. I was inspired by Rich when he first started the podcast. I uh, read your memoir and, and all that and did my first marathon about seven years ago. Shortly after that, my father passed away. And as life happens, you kind of just lose all motivation and stop being vegan, stopped running completely. And I'm a lot heavier than I used to be. And I just wanted to know, for heavier folks who are trying to get back into a game or just start it, there's not a lot of information out there of, of how to do it. It's it's hard to ego check yourself and, and know that you can't do what you once used to do. I just wanted to know if you guys had any advice on starting over for folks who have kind of lost it all and, and are trying to grasp the reality of where we're at and, and where we once were and, and just the mind game that that plays uh, sometimes. Um, feel free to play this clip. Thank you guys so much. I love listening to you guys. Uh, big fan. Bye. Thanks for your question, Will. It's a good question. I think it's a question that a lot of people can relate to. Mm. Uh, and I have a few thoughts on this. I mean, first of all, the only day better than yesterday to begin something like this is today, right? And the good news is you've done it before. So you actually already know what to do. You mentioned that there's not a lot of information out there on how to do it. Um, I disagree. I think there's plenty of information. I don't think that we're, uh, you know, thirsting for information that doesn't exist on how to, um, you know, make this kind of trans transformation. Um, so information, in my opinion, be, you know, you you did this before. You read my book. You went vegan. You ran a marathon. Like information is not your malfunction. Action is your problem. And I think that you're a victim of, of your own um, kind of shame at the moment. So my suggestion is to find a way to bury that shame spiral and to put an end to the pity party and just begin by putting one foot in front of the other. What is right in front of you to do right now? Can you go out the door and go for a walk? What is your next meal gonna be? And I think with that, with those tiny steps, you start to create a little bit of momentum and there's huge power in momentum, mm. if you can create just the tiniest positive change that's a little bit different from your daily MO, that will help free you from this position that you're in right now, which is being stuck in a negative cycle. So the focus should be on what can you do right now? You can't run a marathon. You haven't been vegan for a while. You put on a bunch of weight. You can go for a walk. You can eat a salad and you can celebrate those tiny wins until you slowly get more emotionally connected to this arc of improvement. And with that, the path will present itself, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need somebody to deliver you an information packet with your plan for the next two years. What you need to do is to take action. And I think at odds with that right now, this enemy that you're facing is comparing yourself to this person that you were seven years ago. Comparison is the thief of joy. 
So stop comparing yourself to your past self or to other people. It's this idea of not training where you think you should be. Like if you go out for a jog and you get tired after a block and you feel like you have to walk and then you're beating yourself up because I used to run a marathon and look at how much weight I put on. Mm. It's not about that. It's not about training where you think you should be. It's about accepting and embracing where you are right now and doing what you are capable of doing because that's the only way that you get anything done or make any progress. So you have everything you need. And I think you need to disabuse yourself of this idea that um, you're gonna stay in your status quo until you experience some windfall of motivation. Like you're waiting to be motivated. Like you said, I just don't feel motivated. I don't have any motivation. And I think when you're in that mindset, you're waiting to feel motivated to do something. And that's not how it works. Like that's in fact a trap. You don't need to be motivated to make change. You just need to do like mood follows action, mm. which is what I always say, right? So um, a day at a time, just like they say in 12 step, like what can you do today? Can you eat a little bit better? Can you move your body in a way that you didn't yesterday? Can your head hit the pillow with a little bit more self-esteem because you exercise some self-care and some self-love by uh, moving the needle ever so slightly in the right direction. And when you start to string some days together of doing just that, it doesn't take long before you wake up a little bit more excited for that walk that turns into a jog that eventually over time will turn into a run and just might bring you back to the starting line of, of another marathon. I love it. It uh, reminds me of like, you know, baseball season around the corner. It reminds me of like those hitters that are in a slump. What do they do is they just focus on their approach to each at bat because you can't control getting a hit, you know, because there's so mm -hmm. many bad bounces or the way the ball, you know, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. Balls and strikes are called differently every day. But can you change your approach to each at bat and then start stringing some good ones together? And mm -hmm. then eventually you start seeing a couple hits and the momentum turns and your confidence turns. Yeah. I mean, I just can't stress the importance of tiny little actions. Like if, yeah. if, if Will's running shoes are, are in the closet, pull them out of the closet and put them in the hallway. Mm. Like if all you did was that, well, that's more than you did yesterday. Mm -hmm. Next time, put them next to your bed. The next day, like, why don't you put them on when you sit up in the morning yeah. and like, you know, walk to your front door. Like, what can, you, what can you do? And then do those tiny things that are very digestible and doable, count them as wins and build on that momentum. It's mm. great advice. And the fact that you're listening, Will, shows that you're still, your head's still right. in the game. Of course. Yeah. All right. We're going to Europe for this one. Hey, Rich and Adam. This is Tanya from Lucerne, Switzerland. I would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So I've been living plant-based for over five years. I try to mostly buy things secondhand. I always stop to question if I want to buy something that I really need. And I do this partly because I'm really concerned for our planet's future and its resources, but also because I have a one-year-old kid and I really want him to grow up living consciously and making deliberate choices. So I try really hard to remind myself that I'm in control only of myself. I often struggle with older people from other generations who live very frivolously with like seemingly little concern about the impact they're having on the planet. I know that grandparents can have a massive influence on their grandchildren. So have you found good talking points to address this or do you just 
try to not think about it too much and let people live how they want to. Thanks so much. Yes, it's okay for you to play this on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Take care. Tanya from Lucerne. Yes, Lucerne in the house. Isn't that where they make the butter? Is that where they make the butter? (laughs) Is it? Shout out Lucerne. Um, Thanks for your question. This is tricky. Uh, Mm. I think it's important to, of course, make the best choices that are in alignment with your values. And that's what Tanya's doing. She's conscientious about her needs and her wants and tries to um, make sure that her consumer choices are in alignment with her values. And that's something to be celebrated. And certainly that's healthy modeling for your child because Mm -hmm. it's not about what you say, it's about Um, it's about what you do, it's about your behavior. Um, But I also think this question has a lot to do with controlling the controllables, understanding what you can control and what you can't control and really having um, a healthy mindset around how you calibrate all of that. As a parent, you lead by example and action. Again, you model this behavior for your kids, but it's also important to not be a martyr especially if you're if part of your interest is in trying to inspire the next generation if you're suffering then that doesn't become an aspirational way to live your life and ultimately that's going to set you set you up for your kid to just rebel saying i don't want to live my life like that that right. doesn't look like any fun right. i want to thrive and you know why was i deprived of all these things i'm going to go out into the world and get them like kids are always going to differentiate in that way mm. and they're going to want to explore um, the opposite of what they've been presented with. So you have to be mindful um, about that a little bit. And I think it's important to not overly in an unhealthy way attach to how your child's moral compass will evolve. And I say that as a parent of four and two teenagers right now, like I've experienced a variety of permutations on this. <laughs> Everything from, we love the way that you parented us and we wanna model our own value system based upon how we were raised to, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> Keep that yeah, vegan, yeah. get that vegan butter yeah. out of here. And a lot of that just has to do with how they come out of the womb. You know right, what I right, mean? Right, like, right, right, but my right. point being that the you only have- blockchain. You only have so much <laughs> control over these things, right? right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, the ultimate blockchain. <laughs> DNA. Um, and I guess I would also say that I can appreciate how it can at times feel dispiriting that perhaps you feel like you're not making enough of a difference. Like you make these small choices in your life, but how much is this really moving the needle? But I do think they hold symbolic power and they do model um, for other people in your orbit, like what's important to you. And it sends the message out that this is something of value to you and perhaps would be of value to other people. But because there's so little we can control in the kind of um, climate trajectory of our planet, there are other ways that you can contribute through activism or charity or organizing, because ultimately the real change, the big change is going to have to be systemic. And that's gonna come through legislative and regulatory changes, not by a few isolated people sacrificing all of their happiness and well-being on the altar of like martyred sacrifice. Mm. So I think it's important to thinking about all of this to to reframe how you approach the mindset of your parents, I assume your parents, your child's grandparents, um, this idea that you're gonna change their minds or I that, th- or I think that you in-laws. think- I it's in-laws. Is it in-laws? I, I'm, okay. think, I'm, I'm in-laws. sensing in-laws, I'm right. sensing in-laws. We don't know. 
We don't know what's going on in Lucerne. <laughs> no. <laughs> is it butter or in-laws? I think, I think it's in-laws. You know, that's, you're setting yourself up for, for a losing battle there. Like these people are set in their ways. It's very unlikely that you're gonna get them to see things differently. And you don't wanna leave yourself, you know, frustrated and irreparably eroding a relationship that is perhaps healthy in other ways. Mm. I think that you have the opportunity as your child gets older to contextualize, you know, where your grandparents are coming from and their life experience, you know, for your child as he gets older. But in the meantime, you know, all I have is like my own kind of approach to all of this, which is less about being in the business of trying to change other people's minds and more about just being a lighthouse. Like if you could just be a beacon of positive energy and positive change and living your life in accordance with your values, that's much more attractive. And I also think magnetic and powerful mm. than bitching about how other people, you know, don't get it. No you doubt. Have, you have in-laws. I have, I, I Do don't they really, live in Lucerne? I don't really, I don't really. I have, don't. I, I, my, uh, my wife is like Jason Bourne. She comes from nowhere. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> um, she's got, she's got a past. Mm. Um, so no, we're not really super, we do have, I do have in-laws, but it's not like it's a close thing. They're all in Australia, but she has in-laws. I'll tell you that my wife has in-laws. Mm, right. <laughs> so maybe she should be sitting here. <laughs> no, um, you know, I, I think, and she's vegan, but you know, it's, it's different. Like my, my parents aren't trying to, um, yet, uh, feed, you know, he's obviously still nursing and mm -hmm. he's just getting into people food and, um, and so at some point he'll be spoiled with ice cream and things that she won't feed him in that exact way, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Um, but that's not really on our on our plate. I, I think this is interesting. I think you made a really good point in that um, all the people I know involved in environmental activism from a consumer perspective, like the marine plastic pollution people, like the real professionals, Five Gyres and other organizations like that, they will tell you the fight is upstream. It's not about you know, learning how to do everything with reusable. It's not about like, you can't erase all plastic from your life. It's about stopping the production of future plastic, stopping mm -hmm. those pr plastic plants. Exactly like you were saying. The fight, the changing of the world is upstream. It's not necessarily in your daily life. Now, on the other hand, I can see how having a certain ethos is a lifestyle in and of itself. And it can actually be a confidence booster for you, mm -hmm. but you're flagging that it could also be repellent for the child mm -hmm. as the child grows. Child's mm -hmm. one years old. Right. It's not a Who problem knows? yet. But like it's, more will be revealed. More will be revealed. But I think those are all interesting points and great points. And uh, you know, the boomers are the boomers. Right. What are you gonna do? Boomer's gonna boom. Boom. Boomer's gonna boom. <laughs> All right. Let's hey, go to Shout Christopher. Out we love Let's you. Let's go to Christopher from Boston. All right. Hi, my name is Christopher Hicks. I am currently living in, in Boston, Massachusetts, but I'm uh, from Montana. Um, but nonetheless, big fan. Uh, I'm an alcoholic and in recovery for quite a while, uh, but nonetheless, catching the endurance bug and finding endless inspiration from uh, your story. Um, right now, currently training for the Rut 50K at uh, Sky Running Ultra Endurance Race in, in Big Sky, Montana. Some friends and I are racing from around the country, but my question is how to optimize training for altitude. Um, the race is actually ranging between 7,000 up to just over 11,000 feet, but uh, living at sea level, how is it that I could optimize my training here at sea level in order to benefit my race uh, coming up in September? So anyways, any tips, 
tricks or just opinions that you have, that would be great. Thank you. Good question, Christopher. Thanks for that. Um, there's a couple of things that you can do. Some are expensive and some are free. Uh, and I'm sure you've probably already heard of these. I mean, you can of course uh, purchase an altitude tent, right? And sleep in that every night. <laughs> what is an altitude yeah. tent? You haven't watched Alexi Pappas's movie. Uh, no, no, I have not. Tracktown. Yeah. She, she, her whole bedroom is set up as an altitude tent in this movie. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's basically a, a pressurized tent that you can put in your bedroom and sleep in that approximates um, the, uh, what it's like to be at altitude by like, you know, it's a reduction in the amount of oxygen mm. basically mm. that acclimates you to altitude. And then when you go out and you go out of the tent and then you train, you're obviously at sea level. So you get this boost. So it's the back and the forth. That, like a decompression that, chamber kind of. Sort of like that, yeah. yeah. And I, I actually don't know how expensive those things are. I just assume they're probably crazy expensive. Um, hardcore endurance junkies uh, swear by them. Um, of course, you could take a weekend trip to altitude and try to get you know some training in you know at, at seven thousand feet. I don't know if that's possible, especially during a pandemic. And obviously, that's something I'm sure you've <laughs> that's occurred to you right. at some point. So right. I don't know how helpful it is for me to to mention that. Um, another thing that that some people um, have expressed positive results from is wearing a training mask, hmm. um, which is basically like, it kind of look, we're all wearing masks right now, but right. it has like a gauge on it and it reduces the amount of airflow that you get. I think it's just trainingmask.com, but- Yeah, there's running in your mask alone could do, could do some basically, of that, Basically, right? but, but there is a difference between, at true altitude, there, it's a low, there's a lower oxygen content in what you're breathing, but you're not restricting airflow. Okay. And there's something different about restricting the airflow while the oxygen ratio remains the same that scientists have basically said, this is not, this is a pretty ineffective way of approximating altitude training. There's an article um, on TrainRight um, about this. I'll link it up in the show notes that basically do altitude training mass work for endurance athletes. The, the essential conclusion is really not so much. Um, it might be good for mental training though, to like feel what that feels like, to have a little bit of a reduced, just to sort of prepare yourself for that experience. Mm. Um, but short of an altitude tent or being able to train at altitude, um, there are certain things that you can do in training. You might wanna over index a little bit more than you would ordinarily on interval training and hill training. You're training for a 50K trail race, it's probably uh, you know a pretty zone two approach. Um, that wouldn't require a lot of interval training or, or like hill repeats, high intensity stuff. But there are indications that weaving that kind of work into your daily routine, not your daily routine or your weekly routine um, can have some benefits in how your body's going to process altitude. I also would suggest arriving at the event as early as possible, you know, as many days in advance as you possibly can. What would you say Typically would be ideal? Well, seven days, it really takes seven days to acclimate. Um, you may not be able to go a whole week ahead of time to reap that benefit, but every day I think is gonna be a little bit better uh, if you can do that so that you can get used to it a little bit. Uh, I also think you're gonna have to boost your hydration and your caloric intake at altitude. Your needs are gonna be different. So over-indexing on hydration and carbs is gonna be important. And short of all of those things, as you just go out and train on a daily basis, 
anticipate that the suffering you're going to experience is going to be different than what you're experiencing in in you know in Boston running around running around Massachusetts. Mm. Um, it's going to be harder, so just start to wrap your head mentally around that and adjust your expectations accordingly, because nothing really compares to training at altitude or racing at altitude. So you got to let go of whatever goals you have around pace and time and focus on exertion, right? Because that's really the only um, metric that's important in trying to train at sea level and race at altitude, mm -hmm. right? Like your whatever your Garmin says about your pace like is meaningless because it's just gonna be a lot harder and, and you're your, gonna suffer. Is your hydration 2X, would you say? That's a good question. I, I think it's a personal thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say 2X off the bat. I think it's something that is gonna be different for everybody but just to be mindful and ahead of it, I think yeah. is gonna be important. Cause you get that lung burn when you first run at altitude, right? Like It's that, the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you feel like you're yeah. the only one who's feeling that. Yeah, like yeah, there must yeah. be something wrong with me or I didn't train or this is gonna be terrible. So I think just mentally, you know, preparing yourself for that is, is, is something that um, would be wise to do. And if he gets there seven days early, how many runs should he get in? Well, I think you should go, if you get there seven days early, go to the highest point that you can, because there's probably a variety in elevations, you know, once you get to the venue. Um, so the, the more time that you can spend at the highest altitude possible and doing your, your training leading up to the event, I think will be beneficial as well. Fair enough. Cool. All right, we, we did it. We done did it. How are you doing? How you feel? I feel good, man. I feel, I feel good, man. Do you feel like a podcaster? I do. I feel like I could be NFT'd right now. That's how <laughs> I you? feel. Yeah. Just NFT, just NFT your body? Me. Just NFT me. Yeah. We could do a digital scan. If it wasn't so environmentally. 3D print you. If it, was so, it wasn't so environmentally intensive, I would just become <laughs> an NFT. Well, that is the future that we're all looking at right, right. now. Right. Especially if you read Kevin Roos's new book, Future Proof. I can't wait to read that book. Yeah, you should And read uh, I might NFT one breath at some point. You know, so. that's really at odds with your environmental no, activism, Adam. I can't see that happening. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Unless you buy carbon offsets, right? You can always balance it out. The other thing about NFTs is there's all these hidden costs as well because you have to you have to pay for the computing costs. I think so. People oh, really? who've sold stuff or bought stuff then get these bills that they didn't expect for oh because you have the to keep energy. It going? Um, no, I don't know exactly. I read something about that. I should just stop talking because I really don't know what I'm talking about. Signing off. <laughs> All right, let's sign off. Uh, we'll be back here in two weeks. Until then, you can find Adam on Twitter and on Instagram at Adam Skolnick. I'm at Rich Roll. Leave a leave us a message if you'd like your uh, question fielded on a future edition of Roll On. The number is four two four two three five four six two six. Check out the show notes on the episode page. We'll link up tons of articles on all the stuff that we talked about today. You can find that at richroll.com. Again, please subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all the places. And uh, that's it. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for producing today's podcast as well as audio engineering it and doing all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Blake Curtis for videoing the show for YouTube and all the clips that we share. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers on portraits duty today. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by my boys, Tyler Trapper and Harry.
Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the love. See you back here in a couple of days with another awesome episode. I don't even know what we're putting up next, but it's going to be good. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I will, it be, will it be one of one? It will be. It will be a one of one. Yes. <laughs> what if you just made everything that you did on the internet an NFT? Like every tweet, every Facebook post, yeah. every Instagram. It sounds exhausting. Just NFT your entire <laughs> experience. Yeah.